Why didn't you ask them any questions? Questions? Excellent questions. You knew you could ask questions, didn't you, Ben? Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are answering your questions. You, our listeners, are nothing if not curious, and so there is a lot to discuss. About the future of trans rights, about the law and film, and what the hell is going on with Ginny. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our nation to steadily dissolve, like Tom Brady's marriage. I'm Peter. (laughs) I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi, NFL postseason. We are here. It's playoff season, baby. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And I am making topical, timely metaphors that will, in two months, sound completely ridiculous and irrelevant. (laughs) 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 All right. We are doing a bit of a special episode today. Little mailbag sort of episode. A lot of podcasts do this when they are out of ideas and don't want to work that hard on an episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's get it going. (laughs) 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 So we solicited Uh, questions from our listeners. As usual, pretty disappointing showing. (laughs) Small handful of good questions. Some that are just too nerdy. (laughs) Some from people who don't seem to listen to the show at all. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. And a few good ones, probably about, you know, a few dozen good ones. And we picked some of the best and we're going to go through them. Yeah, we haven't done a mailbag or like a Q&A episode in a really long time. Yeah. Have we only done I think maybe we've only one or done two one. in the past? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a good time. I like interacting with people and hearing mm-hmm. what they want to know about us. But yeah, some of these are absurd. Some of these are ridiculous. Some are completely inappropriate. But yeah, I think we've chosen some good ones. Yeah. yeah. Someone congratulated us on our new contributor that we added we were all very confused until we realized they just thought we were an entirely different podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this this person felt passionately enough to like write in. Incredible. But was paying so little attention that they didn't even understand what podcasts they were talking to. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. What, kind, what kind of life are you leading? <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> all right. So let's kick it off here with a question we got from more than one person, which boiled down to what's the latest on Ginny Thomas? That's right. Mm. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what's up with Ginny. Everyone knows I'm a big Ginny head and I like to keep people apprised. Um, Ginny, 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 can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Ooh, We're off the rails real quick here. Um, so the, the basic situation is that Jenny a few months ago was interviewed by the January 6th committee and the transcript was actually published a couple of weeks ago. And to give an overview, I think we didn't learn too much, but there were a couple of funny things. Uh, now, of course, Ginny had been texting and in contact with people within the Trump administration, notably Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. And and that included messages to Mark Meadows where she said things like, 
the Biden crime family is going to be <laughs> living in a barge, imprisoned on a barge outside of Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, right. very normal, very cool. Mm-hmm. So we got to see the committee ask her about that, and she was like, "Well, look, I regret saying that, but it was just it was an emotional time." Mm. Um, that's <laughs> then there were no follow up questions. <laughs> I would have loved someone to be like, "Yeah, but like." Why did you say that? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Is this a fantasy? Because it doesn't. The thing is that I think that she was presenting it like, oh, I was angry and like fantasizing out loud about the Biden mm-hmm. family being imprisoned. But that's for sure not what was happening. What was happening was that she was like processing QAnon nonsense from her Facebook feed and being like, no, what's actually going to happen to Joe Biden? Right. Is that he's going to be imprisoned on a barge outside of Guantanamo. Right. After we hang Mike Pence and install Trump as president for life, he's going to send the Biden crime family to Guantanamo. Yeah. The storm is coming. (laughs) So she also said, like, FYI, everyone, I do believe there was misconduct in the 2020 (laughs) election. Like, don't get me wrong. Some shit went down here. Mm. But she conceded to the committee that Joe Biden is the president. She admitted it. So pretty big win. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, she insisted that she did not discuss any cases or issues pending before the court with Clarence Thomas, though she implicitly admitted that she discusses or discussed the election with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So sort of unclear what happened there. Pretty obvious that she's bullshitting about like discussing issues that are before the Supreme Court, which would basically mean that they don't talk about politics at all, which is obviously untrue. Mm -hmm. But that's what's up with Ginny. Of course, there will be very little further action from the House on this because it's now controlled by Republicans. And so their only real issue is like, does this lead to changes in ethics rules for the court? The answer to that is also no. (laughs) 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 Status quo, intact, baby. Yeah, that's right. That's the takeaway. Yep. So the next question, more of a comment. Maria from Baltimore said, Michael and Rhiannon seem like cat people. Peter seems like a dog person. Is my assessment correct? This is so funny. Maria. Now, Maria, (laughs) do you listen to the podcast? (laughs) So first of all, Michael literally has dogs. Two dogs. Barking in the background. Yeah, of multiple episodes. <laughs> yeah, you can hear my dogs. <laughs> Peter, you've also talked about your cat on the on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I just don't get why someone would say something yeah, like Yeah, I'd this. love to <laughs> know how Maria got this impression, just what the vibes were, because I feel like Michael clearly gives off dog person vibes. Yeah. Maria, are you confusing me and Michael? That's, that's a oh, basic question. maybe. Right? Maybe. Yeah, that, that might, might be, be it. it. I will say, though, before she was a star legal podcaster, Rhiannon was briefly famous <laughs> as a dog owner. <laughs> That's right. She yes. went viral on YouTube and were on what? Good Morning America? I was on Good Morning America. I was on Good CNN. Morning. Yes. I think the show was called Out Front with Aaron Burnett. Wow. So this was in law school. I had a dog <laughs> named Queso who was a big dog big dummy and he was afraid to go through doorways and so instead of like freaking out about it and like not being able to go into a room where he wanted to go he would turn around and walk backwards through the door 
perfect solution. Back his way through the door. <laughs> yeah. And I remember um, this video going, I like, I remember seeing it on like Reddit or some shit like that. Yeah. yeah. Before we ever knew each other. Yeah. yeah right. Totally. Yeah. I was in law school. Yeah. Sadly. Well, not sadly. Queso has a good life. But here's a little Rhiannon lore. About four months into starting this podcast, I got a divorce. <laughs> And my ex-husband got the dogs, Denver and Queso, shout out, and I got the house. So that was kind of the breakdown. Mm -hmm. So I don't have pets right now, but would really love to get a cat soon. To be fair, I like dogs. I don't like, I don't, I'm not someone who dislikes dogs, which I think is pretty psychotic. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a total misread, but certainly I prefer cats because like, they just like, they hang out. They just don't bother me, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had cats and dogs both growing up and I would have a cat if I had dogs that were compatible Mm -hmm. with having a cat. Um, But I do not. (laughs) And definitely (laughs) choose dogs over cats. I think I'm very much a dog person who likes cats more so than a cat person. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Maria from Baltimore, there's your answer. You are... (laughs) the second most oblivious question behind the person who thought we were a totally different podcast. (laughs) So next up, Anthony from Long Island. This is at least substantively Supreme Court related. Anthony from Long Island asks, what is the best dissent you've ever read? Two dissents immediately popped into my mind. First is very seriously the best dissent that I've ever read. This is Justice Blackman's dissent in Callens v. Collins. It's a 1994 case about the death penalty. The prisoner's death sentence in this Supreme Court case was affirmed. And Justice Blackman has a really beautiful, it's quite a famous dissent in terms of the death penalty. And where you can see that Justice Black is really wrestling with decades of death penalty jurisprudence at the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court is insisting that they're making sure that the death penalty is fair and not arbitrary. And Justice Blackmun sort of coming to the conclusion in this dissent that there's no way to do that, that the death penalty is inherently unfair, can never be constitutionally sound. And the dissent is really beautifully written and really sticks with you. I definitely suggest that people go read it. Again, the case is Callens v. Collins. Justice Blackmun starts the dissent by saying, Bruce Edwin Callens, will be executed tomorrow by the state of Texas. Intravenous tubes attached to his arms will carry the instrument of death, a toxic fluid designed specifically for the purpose of killing human beings. The witnesses will behold Callens strapped to a gurney seconds away from extinction. Within days or perhaps hours, the memory of Callens will begin to fade. The wheels of justice will turn again and somewhere another jury or another judge will have the task of determining whether some human being is to live or die. Later in the dissent, Blackman says, quote, from this day forward, I no longer shall tinker with the machinery of death. For more than 20 years, I have endeavored. Indeed, I've struggled, along with the majority of this court, to develop procedural and substantive rules that would lend more than the mere appearance of fairness to the death penalty endeavor. Rather than continue to coddle the court's delusion that the desired level of fairness has been achieved and the need for regulation eviscerated, I feel morally and intellectually obligated simply to concede that the death penalty experiment has failed. So that's one that's sort of 
beautiful and sad, definitely probably substantively and and emotionally the best dissent that I've ever read in a Supreme Court case. But it depends. You know, the question says, what's the best dissent you've ever read? So it depends how you interpret the word best, because Mm -hmm. the funniest dissent I've ever read is Scalia's (laughs) dissent in VMI. That's actually United States v. Virginia. That's a case that found that VMI, the Virginia Military Institute's male-only admissions policy, was unconstitutional. They had to start admitting women or at least have a policy that didn't say that women were excluded, right? Justice Scalia is the lone dissenter here. Mm -hmm. He starts the dissent. I mean, it's just... uh, It's... (laughs) It's wild. He starts the dissent with, today the court shuts down an institution that has served the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia with pride and distinction for over a century and a half. (laughs) Note that the opinion does not shut down VMI. They just say that women have to be admitted. (laughs) VMI used to be for the boys. Yeah. That's right. And now girls are going to go to VMI. Is a co-ed VMI is it really it's like it's um sorry what's the fucking the ship theseus is a ship theseus is a ship yes it's theseus is a ship if you rebuild it if you slowly rebuild vmi with girls is it even vmi (laughs) anymore that's right yeah and so the dissent is absolutely hilarious come for the hyperbole stay for the quoted code of the gentleman Mm -hmm. that scalia includes and laments like histrionically is now totally lost He says at the end of the dissent, quote, I do not know whether the men of VMI lived by this code, perhaps not, but it is powerfully impressive that a public institution of higher education still in existence sought to have them do so. I do not think any of us, women included, will be better (laughs) off for its destruction. (laughs) It's great. So good. Definitely go read U.S. v. Virginia. That guy is... Such a fucking loser. And speaking of dunking on Scalia, in Callens v. Collins, the death penalty case, yeah, he referenced another murder that was before the court at the time. Scalia has a concurrence in that case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's sort of responding to Blackman and basically being like, the death penalty is nothing compared to like what happened to the victims. And he references a couple of murders, one of which... It turns out 20 years later or so was not committed by the person who was accused of it. That's That's right. right. So one of the cases that Scalia was like holding up to be like, this is why we need the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Actually had the wrong guy. Yeah. Guy's innocent. Dipshit. Burn in hell. Yep. All right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Gunner in Minneapolis asked, uh, what is the most accurate or best portrayal of the legal profession? In movies and television. You know, there are a lot of popular answers for this. I think mm. uh, especially Better Call Saul is a very popular one. Yeah. I will say that for the most part, the types of law that are shown in Better Call Saul are not ones that I practiced. But I will say Syriana, the movie Syriana, if you remember it, mm. included a- George Clooney? Yeah. Uh, yes, George Clooney. And Jeffrey Wright mm-hmm. plays a white collar criminal attorney who is tasked with investigating a supposedly or maybe corrupt merger. And that I think was uh, having worked on internal investigations at uh, my law firm and worked on white collar stuff. I feel like one of the best sort of looks at what that work is like. It's very 
esoteric and people don't realize that like what you're doing a lot of time is investigating your client and looking for your client's wrongdoing. Like the government has a sense that they did something wrong and your job is to comb through hundreds of thousands of pages of records to find what they did wrong and tell them like, this is how you fucked up. This is the criminal activity that's going on within your organization. Yeah. And then like smoothing the way for like a resolution between, you know, your client and the government, which is what Jeffrey Wright did. And I think illustrates that stuff very well. It's like a, a weird corner of law. This is, I think that was the second Siriana reference because once I referenced that quote, yes. like the corruption, the corruption. is what. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's got to be the most <laughs> the most references on a legal podcast Siriana's ever gotten. <laughs> I think the other popular answer to this question is my cousin Vinny. Yes. Which does a very good job with like courtroom dynamics mm-hmm. and basic rules of evidence and stuff like that mm-hmm. without being inaccessible. Not to mention, you get prime Joe Pesci and prime Marissa Tomei. I mean, it's just a, yeah. a great film. Yeah. yeah. Also, being an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell was essentially like being Keanu Reeves and the Devil's Advocate. Like, no difference. (laughs) (laughs) At all. (laughs) You know, what pops in my mind with this question is Michael Clayton, which I actually just watched recently. I can't say that it's like an incredibly accurate portrayal of the legal profession because the main character has a very specific role at a law firm, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think there is something special that's portrayed in the movie that is a sort of day-to-day intensity and stress, right? As well as a certain dehumanization that people experience working in a big, powerful law firm like that. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Now, several people asked us for updates on either labor law generally or specifically Glacier Northwest v. Teamsters, which is a case pending before the court right now. What happened in that case was a bunch of Teamsters who drive cement trucks went on strike. In the process, they left cement in certain company trucks. They left the trucks running so the cement wouldn't harden and cause damage. But the company wasn't able to figure out how to deliver the cement. So the cement hardens, causes some damage to company property. And the company sued the union for damages, saying that their actions purposefully caused the damage. This is a big deal in labor law because like in the broadest sense, strikes always cause damage to company property, right? That is the point. So if companies can sue unions for the damage caused by strikes, that's potentially quite devastating for unions and undermines, if not completely nullifies, their ability to meaningfully strike, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at this with the broadest possible reading, companies could say, hey, our workers went on strike. That impacted our revenue. Right. So we're going to sue the union. Yeah. Now, I don't want to get too fatalistic. There's a lot of middle ground between a total Teamsters win where they're off the hook and saying that unions have to pay for all damages for strikes. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. But disconcerting that this is being (laughs) entertained at all Mm -hmm. at this level. And if I had to guess, I'd say that the court 
is fairly likely to do something that chills the ability of labor to engage in strikes. So, you know, all eyes are on the case right now. It's certainly the first time in about four years that there's been like a truly monumental labor law case. The last one was Janus, which we did an episode on way back in the day. Mm-hmm. So we'll see come June just how bad it is. But I'm I'm not excited. Yeah. So this is a question we get a lot just on a rolling basis. And in general, the question is, how do I find a lawyer? Right. People will ask us or describe their current legal uh, scenarios and they're looking for representation, wondering how to find a lawyer. Any thoughts about that, guys? To <laughs> <laughs> be honest, I don't think that there's a clean answer to this question um, yeah. because yeah. it's so situational. Yeah. If you are in criminal trouble, there's one answer. If you have a family law dispute, there's another. I think in general, if you have money to pay an attorney, then things like Google and reviews and lawyers' websites and all of that is your friend, right? Mm -hmm. Looking through local lawyer directories, seeing what kind of cases these people take, what their specialties are, all of that kind of thing. It's overwhelming, certainly, but it's like the same as like finding a doctor or something like that, right? It it takes a little bit of time, take some research and... You find one and they're terrible and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Right, right. Is everyone else having a really negative experience with this doctor? And then you (laughs) look it up and they are. Right. Yeah. (laughs) The good thing is a lot of lawyers, I would imagine most lawyers have opportunities for initial consultations. So you can talk to somebody about what your case is and decide if you would like to enter into an attorney client relationship. If you don't have money, depending on what your legal issues are, then in general. And has Rhiannon got the opportunity for you? (laughs) If you sell only 20 (laughs) of these leggings. In general, I think you should be or directed towards a local legal aid organization, right? Legal aid organizations are generally nonprofit groups. They're all over the country. They're certainly in every major city that usually practice different areas of law. And the whole point is getting legal services to people who can't afford to hire an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the key starting points are one, when you contact a lawyer, just ask for a quick free consultation. And two, if you really feel like you don't have money, legal aid is the perfect place to start. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't have the resources you need, they will be able to direct you where you need to go. Yeah. And finally, um, if people need white collar defense work to call your friends at (laughs) Sullivan and Cromwell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) If you are a large financial institution (laughs) and have a headline grabbing... Is your hedge fund accused of shareholder (laughs) Have you been misappropriating funds from your investors? Even if you know like a friend of a friend or like a distant cousin or something who's a lawyer, that's also like a good place to start because lawyers always have a network they can tap into at their firm or from law school or whatever where they can be like, oh, I can ask around for a good recommendation for a family lawyer. We're not that friend of a friend for you, though. Yeah. (laughs) To be clear, we can't just do referrals for our listeners all day. And also, Peter and I aren't even practicing law anymore. So I'm still licensed. I'm not. (laughs) I got my license renewal 
in New York, you do your license renewal every two years. I got mine in and right at the buzzer. So I've got a solid year and eight months left. So if anyone needs me to handle their legal matter, prepare to have the worst representation of your life. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it. So Sandra in New York says that the American right has accelerated and institutionalized its anti-trans reactionary panic in the last year. I agree, Sandra. Do you think the Supreme Court will take a case about trans rights in the next year or two? How do you think the language of sex, quote unquote, in documents like Title VII restrict or enhance arguments for trans rights? If such a case does reach the court, what could happen? I don't think the court will take a trans case. And there was a trans case that implicated Title VII just recently in the last few years, and it was a 6-3 win for trans rights, finding that Title VII does include trans people, that the protections based on sex include trans identities. So that was, you know, the four libs before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and was replaced, plus Roberts and Gorsuch. And Gorsuch wrote the opinion. Now, it's very possible that Roberts saw that this was going to be 5-4 and joined just so he could make Gorsuch the author and write a very narrow and more conservative opinion. That being said, I don't think he is going to now want to overturn Bostock. That's not his M.O., He likes to at least create the appearance of continuity in the law, which means even now there are five votes for maintaining Bostock's protection, Uh, the three liberals plus Gorsuch and Roberts, almost certainly. You only need four justices to want to take a case uh, to take it, but I just don't see the conservatives lining up another trans rights case just to lose on it again. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right. So- No, I'm not worried about that right now. The stuff that's going on at the state level is very concerning, and that's where our energy and efforts should be. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think that's why we shouldn't be too concerned about Title VII at this point. That said, you do have concerns about the scope of religious liberty claims and how many people are going to bring claims essentially saying that they should be able to discriminate against trans people, against LGBTQ people in general, on the basis of their religious liberty. It seems pretty clear that the court is willing to entertain those claims. So I'd be worried about that, and I'd be worried about state-level laws that are just brutally discriminatory and you know the, the court's willingness to entertain those laws, to uphold those laws in different contexts. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I won't wouldn't be surprised to see things like, you know, the masterpiece cake shop, like denial of service, religious liberty claims, as well as something like, you know, Hobby Lobby decision where employers try to dodge paying for healthcare for trans employees Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe just will drive trans employees out of the workplace in a lot of industries. Right. Yeah. Not sure who asked this question, but someone said, what do you think the most underrated Supreme Court cases are? That is, what are some cases that y'all think were well decided, but they aren't as well known as ones like Brown or Roe? I have a couple thoughts about this, although I do want to say that, like, it took me a fucking minute Mm -hmm. to come up with some. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, it's unfortunate, but like uh, the good cases from the Supreme Court are a little bit few and far between, which is, I guess, the thesis of the damn podcast I'm on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have definitely mentioned on the podcast at various times or in talking about, quote unquote, the good cases with law students. We have certainly mentioned Gideon v. Wainwright, mm-hmm. which says that people who can't afford an attorney will be appointed one in criminal cases. Map v. Ohio, which created the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule. Miranda v. Arizona. Michael has certainly talked at length about Miranda and what a good case that is. Pretty special case in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence. Outside of that, you know, I thought about a case I learned about in con law, Heart of Atlanta Motel. Mm -hmm. That case upholds the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says that private businesses can't discriminate on the basis of race. In that case, it was a hotel in Atlanta that wanted to say that Black people could not be guests at the hotel. The Supreme Court upholds the Civil Rights Act, upholds that anti-discrimination ideal and good case there. And then U.S. v. Nixon, Supreme Mm. Court says that the Nixon administration has to turn over the tapes related to Watergate. That's a good one. Good check on executive power. And another more recent one is Young v. UPS. This is a pregnancy discrimination case. So a woman who was pregnant worked for UPS. She was put on unpaid leave during her pregnancy because she had doctor's orders, a doctor's note that said that she couldn't lift packages over a certain weight. While other people with disabilities were not put on unpaid leave, she was showing that it was discrimination on the basis of her pregnancy. The Supreme Court rules in her favor, says that that was discrimination on the basis of sex, specifically pregnancy. So that's a good one as well. Yeah, good list. I would only throw in Baker v. Carr, Mm -hmm. the uh, one man, one vote case from the 60s. Mm. Rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) So many of you asked for an update on the Dobbs opinion leak. There have been some recent developments and uh, we can, you know, sort of walk you through what we know. (laughs) So for background, last May, the Dobbs decision, the opinion overturning Roe, leaked about six weeks before it actually dropped. Big uproar. And the chief justice ordered the Supreme Court marshal to awake from their thousand year slumber and investigate this matter. <laughs> Lucky for us, that investigation just concluded and a report was issued just a few days back detailing the marshal's discoveries here. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. The marshal failed to do her job uh, and they still don't know. They still don't know who leaked this. Just like the police, huh? Inconclusive. Inconclusive. And the one of the sort of funniest revelations of this was that if you look through the report, it's pretty clear that they did not do formal interviews of the Supreme Court justices. So many people like pointed that out on social media. And then the Supreme Court came back the next day with a statement being like, well, that's true, but there were informal interviews of the justices. Yeah, <laughs> right. and those didn't raise any concerns, so right. they didn't right. do formal interviews. And they said in those discussions that there was like, 
questions were asked of the justices, but also asked by the justices. So right. the statement was completely consistent with like, yeah, we kept the justices in the loop on our investigation. Right. They, yeah. <laughs> it's very clear that they were not even conceivable targets right. of the investigation. But not only that. The investigation appeared to center almost exclusively on court personnel, so mm-hmm. clerks, employees, etc., which means that, like, Ginny Thomas was not yeah. a plausible suspect in exactly. the marshal's mind. Right. Yeah. And also, there are some details in this report that are unbelievable. Like, one of the things that made me think that someone's going to get busted for this is, like, when you use fax machines, when you use scanners, modern technology can track that. Mm-hmm. And... I figured that's how they pin someone down, right? Who printed it on May 1st, right? right? And then scanned it to themselves or whatever. The report basically said that they don't have the technology for that sort of thing. Right. (laughs) It's just incredible. To put that in perspective, when the mid-sized insurance company that fired me last year (laughs) interrogated me about my business... They were like, two and a half years ago, you scanned this contract to yourself. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's how they learned about Leon Napok, yeah. right? Like, they, yeah, it was from a scan. Right. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court of the United States is running off of old ass technology. This dipshit marshal isn't even interrogating the justices. Like... What the fuck is going on here? What kind of clown show fucking bullshit is this? <laughs> so good. I will say, I think like not interrogating the justices is just like a tacit admission that like mm-hmm. if a justice leaked it, we would just rather the investigation not find yeah. out. We, we we don't want to confirm that if that's the case. They get away with it if that's the case, right? Yeah. This doesn't count. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. I mean, even beyond that, the decision to have the Supreme Court Marshal yeah. be the one leading this investigation. Oh, yeah. I don't know what this woman's job was before being Supreme Court <laughs> Marshal, but I can tell you that this is largely a symbolic security job, right? Yes. <laughs> like, if they wanted to find this person, they could have brought in the FBI. Yeah. You have the federal government at your disposal. So. Why give this task to the Supreme Court Marshal, a person whose job is to, like, prevent spectators from charging the <laughs> the, the fucking court during oral argument? I, I don't understand. I don't I don't really get it. But it it feels to me like perhaps from the beginning, this was conceived of as like a symbolic sort of like, like, all right, get to the bottom of this. Although, you know, maybe not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. don't, don't uncover too much. Yeah. Don't look too hard. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I think that our message to whoever did this is you got away with it. And whether or not you're liberal or conservative, no matter what your goals were, I think that's pretty cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. You have to admit it's cool. Even if it was just some conservative clerk trying to maintain five votes to deceive the whole nation and humiliate the Supreme Court, to me, that is an inherent good. Let's see more of this. <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> more shenanigans. Thank <laughs> yes. you. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Marcus from Pennsylvania asked, do you think the two student loan forgiveness cases have any chance of coming down in favor of the administration? And is the case likely to be decided on the merits or standing? Good question. Good question. I don't want to do too much like prognosticating on this, 
I think either it will go in favor of the administration on standing or it will go against the administration on the merits. Yeah. Not because of the strength of the claim, but just sort of the dynamics of the court and the way they will try to dispose of this if they decide it's a political issue they don't want to touch. Right. I think this is worth watching, though, and I'll tell you why. Setting aside the fact that I'm sure many of our listeners have a vested monetary interest in the outcome of this case. For sure. Previously, it used to be the case that the way the sort of right-wing ecosystem worked was these ideas you know, would get kicked around at like federal society conferences that get written up in papers. They would work their way through the lower courts over the course of years. And the arguments would be refined and honed and the justices would have a lot of access to them over the course of many years and many different forms from many different speakers and writers and, and whatnot. Until it becomes a sort of almost calcified conventional wisdom within the right wing intellectual legal sphere. That's not really what's happened here. This was like Republicans clearly just didn't think that Joe Biden was going to do this. And then he did it. And it was like clearly popular. And they were like, we got to stop this and like threw some shit together really quick. And it hasn't even really like fully worked its way through the appellate. Uh, system, right? Like I, I believe right. the court granted cert before the appellate courts even ruled on it. So this is like a really raw case in a lot of ways. And there's a chance that the conservatives have looked at the last two years and the backlash they got from Roe and the shellacking, you know, relatively speaking, that the Republicans took at the midterms and say, hey, after all that, we're still alive and kicking, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't pack the court. They didn't come after us with ethics rules. They didn't come after us with term limits. There are no consequences. So they might be feeling a little unchained. And I think this case will be a good barometer for just how unchained they're feeling. In the past, I would have said, no way. But they might be ready to like flex a little, you know? Yeah. And- just so people know, there are several reasons why this case is insane. Mm-hmm. One is the procedural posture, how yes. the court took it up. Another is that it's like pretty clear no one has standing right. <laughs> to the extent that the standing doctrine means anything. And it was so obvious that this was a problem that like Republicans were openly talking about it. Like Ted Cruz yeah. was saying, yeah, we want to challenge this, but we really don't know who has standing. Yeah, He would only ever say that out loud. If he was basically covering his ass so that when they didn't sue, right. he had in like an explanation. So even Republicans were skeptical about this argument, but the way that it has played out in like conservative discourse is that they like slowly cycle the argument amongst each other mm-hmm. until they like land somewhere where they're just comfortable enough and they're like, no, we're, we actually are right about this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Now we have consensus. Yeah. Right. It starts off with them being like, oh, I don't know about this. But then like one person posits one theory and one person builds on it and someone else adds something else. Mm-hmm. And it just gets sort of laundered through their little ecosystem and outshoots a lawsuit with the best theory they've got. And that'll always be enough for someone like Alito. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of a question of whether they can get five votes here. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been some like center right 
like think tanky type guys and professors like a uh, Will Bod, who's sort of like a libertarian, and like guys at the Vola conspiracy who filed an amicus brief in this case saying that they don't think standing is there. Yeah. While they think the merits are against the Biden administration, they just don't think standing is there. So, I mean, the court has something to latch on to from the right wing intellectual sphere if they want it, right? Yeah. Uh, the question is just how much they're willing to pick a fight with the Biden administration, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe what what part of the conservative legal movement do they feel the most allegiance with, right? Because yeah. the the guys who are saying, hey, there's no standing here, there's a project there too to deny right. standing in other cases Absolutely. where the conservatives want to deny standing, right? Right. So there's more than one angle there. That's right. Either way, like the Supreme Court has sucked for a long time and it's been causing us all damage directly and indirectly for a mm-hmm. long time, but- this will be the first time it just takes $10,000 from each of our listeners, I think. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool question, in my opinion. David from Nashville says, how did each of you arrive at your political or ideological beliefs? I used to be a shitty centrist, but joining the labor movement has pulled me very far to the left. Curious how you all were radicalized. So at least for myself, I think it's a few things. You know, I'm Palestinian, grew up in a Palestinian family. And so this is not to say that all Palestinians are leftist, of course. But when you grow up in diaspora, in a family that has been exiled and learning about, you know, a national liberation movement, a struggle towards a people's liberation, I think that kind of already, let's say, put me in the direction of a leftist ideology. As a Palestinian, I grew up hearing stories about how my grandfather was encouraged to be politically involved in Palestinian leftist movement in the Middle East. My family ended up being refugees in Jordan. So my grandfather was encouraged because of his beliefs and his activity politically, but was also held back from being as involved as someone else might have been able to because he was illiterate quit going to school because of 1948. And so that was also kind of always in the back of my mind that this was a generational belief system, a generational calling. And then at least in starting to make some really important political connections, let's say, when Trayvon Martin was murdered in 2012, I, it, it it changed a lot for me. I think it, it changed my trajectory in life. And From there, I started to learn about it's not to say that I didn't know that structural racism existed in, uh, you know, before that. But I was much more, I think, tuned in to those issues and learning about structural racism in the United States, learning about stuff like microaggressions, like the daily racism that people face in the U.S., how that's connected to U.S. empire, how that's connected to mass incarceration. And then from there, really in law school, I learned about prison abolition. And yeah, I think all of those started to, again, like it was me just like making those connections and starting to put together stuff that I believed, but like didn't really have a vocabulary yet for. And so that's where it went from there. I think I've said a few times that I did not go to law school already. I would not have called myself a leftist, right? Certainly Mm -hmm. liberal, Mm -hmm. but definitely naive, definitely idealistic. And I learned 
from peers and from grassroots organizations that I suddenly had contact with in law school a lot more that sort of not opened my eyes, but again, like taught me that like what I was thinking about and what I believed and thought and how I experienced the world was coming from a leftist place, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. I have a sort of similar background in part uh, in that I'm half Iranian and I think that's a big part of my current view of the world because it's, you know, markedly different from being Palestinian in many ways. But one way where it's not is just sort of growing up with a government and a media apparatus that is like openly hostile to your heritage right. in a weird way. Yes. That sort of mm-hmm. puts you in a place where you understand that the interests of our country are adverse to the interests of like your family yes. in many ways. Yeah. Not to mention just makes you more aware of certain types of discrimination, et cetera, um, the ways in which our media talks about life and death in the Middle East. Yes. And on the other side, my grandfather was a socialist and sort of gave me the vocabulary of socialism from a pretty young age. I've had phases of my life where I was less socialist and more just like a center liberal, but I came back around. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was when I was like shutting off my brain and just going to work for a law firm and not thinking about politics. Right. You know, you you drift center out of constitutional necessity. Uh, But every time in my life when I've been like deeply engaged in politics, I have drifted left. Yeah. So both sides of my family are actually similar to what Rhiannon was describing. Diaspora Jews on my dad's side who came through Ellis Island, you know, at the turn of the century. And on my mom's side, Cuban refugees. And both my parents were left-leaning growing up and, you know, sort of instilled in me, you know, a set of values about being welcoming, you know, this country, welcoming people and uh, lifting them up and all that. Also, that being said, (laughs) a very formative experience for me that I've talked about, I think, on the podcast before is that I turned 18 in 2000 and got to vote in my first election, which was the 2000 presidential election. And I grew up in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, which was ground zero for all the election fights. And I didn't know how to vote at the time. I'd never voted before, obviously. And like, I didn't check my little chads or whatever and make sure my ballot was all good. And so my first experience with the American electoral system was this long, drawn out, months long fight where one side of the fight was like, we don't want to find out whether or not my vote counted, right? We don't want to know. We just want to toss my vote, possibly, right? Like, maybe my vote counted. Maybe it didn't. But you don't know. I don't know. Right. I don't know. And one side was fighting to make sure that I would never know. And it's hard not to be radicalized by that, you know? Like, that's something that sticks with you forever, really. Yeah. (laughs) Really forever. I was further, like, ideologically radicalized just, you know, by... The recession and the response to the recession and the response to our first black president and all that stuff. Uh, Very, I think, almost cliched for someone my age, uh, political journey in that sense, ideologically. But I think that covers most of the bases. Hell yeah. 
Um, Cowboys just picked off Brady in the end zone. <laughs> nice. Palestinian <laughs> I love watching Tom Brady lose. It's so good. All right. So Paul from Washington asked, how do Supreme Court deliberations work? It's a good question. And so they have, I believe it's weekly. I think every Friday they have conferences during the period when they're hearing oral arguments where they all get together and they basically go through each case and hash it out, hash out where they're at, where they're thinking. And then they have like a sort of an informal vote tally. And once you have a majority, whoever is the most senior member, the most senior justice within that majority gets to decide who writes the case. Seniority goes by length of time on the court, except for the chief justice, who is always the most senior. And then they retire to their chambers and have a whole opinion drafting period where they will circulate, you know, drafts of the majority opinion. And then if people in, in the majority don't really like it, they might draft a concurrence and circulate that to everyone. There will be dissents circulated as well, which is why the majority often responds to the dissent. There will also be memos every now and then mm -hmm. where someone is articulating a position that they have that they might put into majority or you know right. something that they they don't want to circulate in the form of an opinion they right. they'll send a memo with their position to the other justices right there was one memo that i actually just found out about mccleskey v kemp a case yes. about whether evidence of systemic racism in the application of the death penalty was admissible mm -hmm. scalia circulated a memo saying that he didn't even think that evidence of racist juries in individual cases mattered yeah. Yes. That like basically his point was, well, everyone's got their own biases. You bring that into the jury room. Some of those biases are racial prejudice. And that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. That was genuinely Scalia's position on the matter back in 1987. <laughs> uh, that just gave me a, a wave of stress. I took a death penalty in law school, which is basically Eighth Amendment. Right. And mm -hmm. the final exam included a question about Scalia's memo in McCleskey oh, v. Kemp. God. <laughs> uh, suffering. Uh, it's rare, but it does happen where the composition of the majority opinion justices who sign on to it changes after conference, where people see what the majority opinion is looking like or read a dissent or a concurrence and change their mind and say, you know what, like seeing it on paper and thinking about it and sitting with it. I don't think I got it right the first time and switch positions. Uh, that does happen on occasion. Yeah. Most infamously, it supposedly happened on the very first Obamacare decision, which was apparently originally going to be five to four striking down the entire Affordable Care Act until Roberts basically said, it doesn't write like I'm trying to write this and I just don't believe what I'm writing. Essentially, yeah. like yeah. he couldn't do it. The position I took in bad faith is really hard to articulate. <laughs> <laughs> Without any way saving face. I can't seem to do it. I can't do it. You know when Roberts gives up trying to articulate something yeah. rather than just spitting out the most incoherent gibberish you've ever read in your fucking life? You know it's bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Stephen from Maryland said... Five of these six justices in the majority are men, meaning that they are signed up with the Selective Service. 
Could Joe Biden draft <laughs> Thomas, Kavanaugh, <laughs> Gorsuch, Alito, and Roberts into the armed services? <laughs> now, the answer to that is no. Um, yeah. The draft would require legislation from Congress. Even then, I think you would need the legislation to dictate how the draft proceeds. Hmm. And I'm not certain that Joe Biden, despite being commander in chief, could necessarily just hand select someone, Mm -hmm. although that's possible. You know, he is the head of the military. And frankly, this is a question that could have been answered by a very quick Google search. But I wanted to include it to highlight that this is the sort of psychotic energy that I want our listeners to bring That's right. into these discussions. That's right. <laughs> yes. um, this is the kind of dumb bullshit you should be throwing out there. <laughs> and, you know, for every thousand of these ideas, you only need one. That's right. That's right. That's you only right. need one thing that can draft them into the armed services and send them to Ukraine. So I appreciate the effort, Stephen. Halo jump into fucking Crimea. <laughs> <laughs> Just put them on a fucking rocket ship uh, to the moon and just let it ride. Yeah, go do space wars. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stephen, we appreciate the level of thought that you're putting into this. A lot of people asking things like, what about term limits? No. My man, Stephen's like, can we put these guys onto a battlefield somewhere? That's right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's right, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Good energy. We appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. One last thing. Several people asked for updates since being fired. And some people said, has the process made me reconsider whether I want to practice law at all? So let me be clear. Whether or not I want to practice law, I was fired from a prestigious company (laughs) for having a podcast. So I am unemployable. It's not my choice. I don't. Uh, there's no like philosophical question bouncing around in my brain about where I want my career to go. I'm a podcaster now, whether I want to be or not. That's what's happening. Um, I think those questions included questions about updates on my career. They did. As everybody knows, I left the work of public defense. I now. Just as of a couple of weeks ago, starting in January, I now work at a law school, basically supervising students in service projects, pro bono projects at the law school. So, yeah, that's where I am now. I, by the grace of Allah, am still employable uh, for some reason, despite having the podcast. So, yeah, here I am. All right. Should we wrap it? Yeah. Thank you for subscribing folks follow us on twitter at five four pod follow us on instagram at five four pod and if you want to see us live and you're free in austin texas on february 24th then the stars have aligned Mm -hmm. because we (laughs) are doing a live show uh hit up our website five four pod.com get your tickets that's right if you are in boston on january 28th we will be speaking and recording a little episode at an event at Harvard Law School about the corporate capture of the legal system, you can register over at systemicjustice.org. Next week, Korematsu v. United States. Oh yeah, baby. Long time coming. The legal question, concentration camps for people of a specific ethnicity. Good? Bad? 
We will reveal the answer <laughs> next week on five to four. Oh man! But don't worry. I'm sure that we won't find any striking parallels between the situation in Korematsu and our modern political moment. No, no surely not. Five to four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Okay, now that the lads, the boys, are not here, we can get to the really good questions that I wanted to talk about during the episode. Let's talk some horoscopes. We got questions about everybody's astrological sign. What are the signs of the 5-4 co-hosts and Rachel, and how do those interact with one another? Uh, so yeah, I did everybody's birth chart, which is to say that I got everybody's big three. That's your sun sign, your moon sign, and your rising sign. Your sun sign is basically like your personality. That is the astrological sign that everybody knows that they're born with, right? It's your personality, uh, represents your, your vitality, your individual tendencies. Your moon Moon sign, on the other hand, is about your inner emotions, your inner monologue, how you feel inside yourself. And then your rising sign is how you come off to other people. It might be the sign that people guess that you are. It sort of defines your ways of outward expression. So, Let's jump in, shall we? Starting with Peter. Peter is a Virgo sun. Both Peter and I are Virgos. He is a Gemini moon and he is a Cancer rising. Let's just say this is haunting. This is complicated. This is deeply concerning. Virgos are smart. They love knowledge. They love know-how. At least on the surface or outwardly, they are self-sufficient and self-contained. Now, Gemini moon, that's what is throwing me for a loop here, but that's what is also quintessentially Peter. Gemini moons are, are witty and charming, but also moody, irritable, worrisome. They definitely have a sharp intellect, but can be a little bit out of touch with their own feelings. And then finally, this cancer rising. Peter having a cancer placement is really interesting to me. Like the main thing to know about cancers is that they are emotional and incredibly sensitive. That's surprising to me about Peter because I wouldn't really label Peter as either of those things. But on the other hand, I've known Peter a really long time, you know, long before the podcast started, and he's changed so much. And that really like goes along with this water placement here, right? Like flowing, changing, emotions are changing, sensitivities are changing. So yeah, all three of these in combination, Virgo sun, Gemini moon, Cancer rising. This is a birth chart that is chaos. Moving to Michael. Michael is an Aries sun. He's got a Taurus moon and another Cancer rising. 
So let's just start with Aries, the main one. Michael is a pure Aries. He's active, direct, brave, independent, but on the other hand, can tend to be impulsive, can be on a short fuse, can be quick to anger. Podcast listeners will know. But above all, like a good humored person. Michael is very much an Aries in in all of those senses. And then Michael has a Taurus moon. Uh, We'll get to it, but I have a Taurus moon also. Taurus moons are characterized by being strong-willed. They can revel in material comforts. So the darker side of that is that they can be quite self-indulgent. But overall, a Taurus moon is reliable, has deep and unwavering affection, and also is, is quite convinced of their own ideas, right? Sort of determined in their own beliefs, which... Totally, Michael, right? Finally, cancer rising for Michael, just like Peter. Now, this is really interesting that I am on a podcast with two cancer rising men. You know, I said before that cancers are known for their emotions, for their sensitivity, but also want to say that when cancer risings are, are paying attention, they are entirely immersed. This really, really sounds like Michael, and to a lesser extent, Peter, but absolutely, absolutely Michael. When focused on something, they really are totally, totally focused on that thing, sort of single-minded in that. And Cancer Risings also, they value at-home time. They value solitude. I see this a lot in Michael, a little bit less so, again, in Peter. But I think that's because Peter's birth chart is so freaking wild and absurd. So yeah, Michael's cancer rising makes a little bit more sense to me. Rachel, our producer, this is just a darling, delightful birth chart, if I may say so myself. Rachel is a Pisces. Her moon is in Virgo, and she is an Aquarius rising. So let's just start with Pisces. Pisces are known for strong emotions, but also being extremely adaptable, right? Good in all kinds of groups, good at meeting new people, very open-minded. They have a compassion and deep love for humanity. And here is where, like, this is puro, Rachel. A love for arts, music, teaching, drama, right? Windows through which a Pisces can express themselves. That is totally, totally Rachel. Now, Rachel has a Virgo moon, I'm sorry, but this is what makes Rachel mother, okay? Virgo moons are detail-oriented. They are straightening out those details, honey. They are running the errands. They are balancing the books. They are paying the bills, right? They are at their best when they feel useful. And then Virgo moons are, you know, when they express themselves, when they express their feelings for the people they care about, they do so in pretty practical ways. I happen to know that Rachel is an incredible gift giver, just sort of like a small scale gift giver. And so that makes a lot of sense for her being a Virgo moon. There's a practicality in a Virgo moon that can also tend towards skepticism, but in general, right? Humble, calm, devoted. That's Rachel. Finally, Rachel's rising sign. She is an Aquarius rising. Aquarius is an air sign. People with Aquarius rising are unique. They are total individuals, right? There's nobody like them. They're knowledgeable, irreverent, 
Sometimes that can come off as aloof, but they are interesting. They are interested, good at puzzles. Again, like our, our Rachel's birth chart here just makes so much sense. Mama Rachel. All right. I guess that brings us to me. So I am a Virgo. I share that with Peter. I am a Taurus moon. I share that with Michael. And then I am a Capricorn rising. What you need to know, really, we're not going to go into the details, okay? But what you need to know is that all three of these are earth signs. There is not a more rooted and grounded person in the world than me. I came out of the womb like, mother, we must get to work improving our surroundings and the world. Like, I have been on this one road forever. (laughs) So, um, like I said with Peter, Virgo is smart, also loves organization and thrives in it, strives for structure, strives for perfection, and can be quite self-critical when things are not perfect. Taurus Moon, again, I share that with Michael. We're self-indulgent, baby. We love our material comforts, baby. And then Capricorn Rising, people with a Capricorn Rising tend to thrive in the workplace, have a lot of executive ability, and are ambitious. But there can be a lot of self-doubt, too, can be a really harsh self-critic, sometimes prone to like expecting hardship before it's actually there. So yeah, others can probably tell me if this sounds right for me, but yeah, it does feel extremely on the nose. Mostly that like my three big signs are all earth signs. Go figure. So yeah, those are our birth charts. I hope this is as illuminating for listeners as it was for me. It makes a lot of sense, but also is just really fun to think about. So yeah, those are our signs. Peter is a Virgo, Michael's an Aries, Rachel is a Pisces, and I am a Virgo. 